The title of the sermon is Return to God, Part 3, Mikdash. Now, Mikdash is a Hebrew word. It's usually translated in English as sanctuary, but it literally means the place I call holy, and it's God speaking. So it's the place set apart by God for something significant. Oftentimes, it's referring to the tabernacle or the temple, the place where worship would occur, where sacrifices were made. That's often what mikdash um, means, at least what it refers to, but not entirely. You'll remember when Moses was walking and saw the bush burning with fire but not consumed. This is in the early chapters of the book of Exodus. And he approaches the bush. We're told the angel of the Lord is there speaking on behalf of God. And he says, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. We're more or less being told this is a mikdash, any place that God calls holy. And for most of us in contemporary Christianity, we think of the mikdash of God as our churches, as our church building, as the space that we set apart to gather for worship. And that's why the title of the message is mikdash. We're going to talk about that space and what God would like to see happen in it in these next weeks if we are to truly return to him. So that's where we're headed. But we're going to begin in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. We're going to be in chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. We're going to spend most of our time there, but I am going to read the rest for the sake of context. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent tricked me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. You shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is a familiar story to any who were raised in the church. Um, now, the unfamiliar part of it, we actually discussed at my last ministry assignment when I was talking a little bit about the counsel of God and what humans were created for in the beginning. Now, we don't have a lot of details about God's intent other than that he wanted to make a being in his own image, and he tasked them with ruling over all the creatures he had made and caring for the earth, superintending the earth. What appears to be the case, at least the way that the Garden of Eden image is used through the rest of the First Testament, is that humans are part of God's divine counsel. So there's God, he's the creator of all things. There are lesser Elohim, spiritual beings, which we would call angels, who are also part of the council. Humans are part of this council, and an argument could be made, so is the serpent. So here they are in this place where God meets them. That's the place of the council. It's very similar to when Isaiah is caught up into the throne room of God. That's the council also, but it's in the heavens. This was actually on the earth initially until what happened with Adam, Eve, and the serpent occurred. But it's a betrayal that happens in the very center of where God meets with these people. This is why God says at the end, the human beings have become like us. It's not a, a, a throwaway to the Trinity there. It's God speaking to the rest of the council because humans have betrayed him, humans and the serpent. In the very place where God meets with humans, they made a deal, a pact. And that's what we're going to think about as we begin today. So God had created food for them to eat. Now, the garden is not the entire earth. It's one spot on the earth. It seems to be a meeting place. And God meets with them there, and he creates food. And there is lush food in this garden. It seems like all the trees are very productive. The, the people don't seem to be tending the garden or making this food come forth. It's just there, and they're free to eat of any of it. There's only one tree in this divine assembly gathering place, the Garden of Eden, that produces a fruit they should not eat, and it's the tree of knowledge. Now, in Hebrew, we often translate it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But in Hebrew, it's just the tree of knowledge, comma, good and evil. Good and evil in Hebrew are not ontological terms, meaning that they're not the categories of good and evil. This is not a tree through which you can gain knowledge of moral good and moral evil. That's not exactly what's at stake. Good and evil are experiential terms, what we might call in philosophy existential terms um, in in Hebrew. So good are things you receive as good. They're positive things. They bring positive things into the world. Evil is destructive, harmful, things that hurt. So more or less, this tree is a tree full of knowledge, helpful knowledge, productive knowledge, good, and harmful knowledge, hurtful knowledge, destructive knowledge, evil. Now, it's just knowledge. Da'at is the Hebrew. It's just stuff. 
It's like surfing the internet. There's no context necessarily. There's no wisdom to know when to use what. There's no uh, bina, no discernment as to um, which one of these is good and evil. It's just a tree of knowledge. You might ask yourself, why would God create something like this in the Garden of Eden? Why would he put it there? What I think the scriptures teach is that the Garden of Eden is meant to be truthful. And this tree had to be there because you, he, God had to create the world with this tree. Let me explain. When you create something, buried within it is the technology used to create it, right? Something, something there that you can gain knowledge from. Somebody gives you a cake, you do enough studying of it. This is an example from John Lennox. You study that cake enough, you can figure out its ingredients. There's knowledge, latent knowledge in that cake. Because you can't create a thing without the knowledge, some of the knowledge of its creation being buried within the thing made. The tree of knowledge represents that in the Garden of Eden. The fact that when God created, there was residual knowledge left in the world, that the thing he created itself housed knowledge. And this tree naturally grows out of that. And it tells the people that they could access that knowledge by by digging into the earth, by taking the fruit of this tree. The Garden of Eden is meant to be a visual manifestation for Adam and Eve of the reality of the world in which they are inhabiting. And the tree of knowledge is really a part of the world. We've discovered it in modern days. That is taking the thing created and reverse engineering it to figure out how it works. And by doing that, we can figure out a lot about the world. But what the Garden of Eden tells us is that that is it's just da'at. It's just knowledge. It, it, it's without context. We don't know if it's helpful or hurtful till we try it. And we, boy, have we ever discovered that. So the danger of this tree, its existence is inevitable because the thing made, if God is going to make a being in his image, a being that can truly comprehend God and the universe, then they're going to be capable of taking knowledge from the thing created. So it's inevitable given what God wants to do with humanity. But God says to them, don't eat of that tree. He's more or less saying to them, don't take knowledge. Now, it's not because God's against knowledge. We'll see all through the scriptures that God is very interested in teaching us. He's very interested in educating us. He's very interested in giving us laws and helping us to understand the way the universe works and to guide us slowly as a parent guides a child into the world of knowledge. But the thing of the tree of knowledge, just like the thing of creation itself, is that you can actually take it without any guidance. Instead, God is going to teach them. But the serpent steps in. And he suggests that the reason God wants to be in control of their education is because he's afraid of what they would become if he didn't control their education. He's trying to keep knowledge from you. In fact, he knows that if you start reverse engineering this tree that's tapped into the nature of all creation, and you begin to understand how the world works, you're going to become like God. And that's exactly what he does not want. He gave you that law to hold you down. And so he suggests a conspiracy. Let's eat from that tree and find out what he's hiding. And then together, we can become like God. Now, he puts it in their terms. You can become like God. But it seems very clear that this is a conspiracy. And at first, it's between him and Eve. She doesn't have a name at this point. 
Her name in Hebrew is just Isha, the woman. And he conspires with her. And she is under the impression at first that this fruit is poisonous, something like that. She thinks that you can't even touch it or else you'll die, that it's cursed or something like that. And he insists, oh, that's not the case at all. God would have to kill you. And that's actually what God says. The Hebrew there, when it says you will most certainly die, is mot tamut, which is a very strong, uh, um, God is saying, I will kill you. And the serpent picks up on that. And so he says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to die from touching fruit. You're not going to die from eating the fruit. It, it, the only way you die is if he killed you. But he's, he'd be afraid of you. So if you ate it, maybe he couldn't do it. And she's enticed by that. She, and she realizes, oh, so I won't die if I eat this. In fact, not only does it look good, but I'll gain wisdom that might even make me like God. And so she decides rather than receiving her education from God, rather than being discipled by God, she decides to take the knowledge she wants from the earth herself. We have to remember that pact. And then she brings her husband along and says, I ate of it. I didn't die. And guess what it does? And Adam is willing to eat of it as well. On that day, what the book of Genesis is telling us and the prophets are communicating to us as they're carried along by the Holy Spirit is that human, humans made a sort of Faustian pact against God with the serpent. Now, God's response when he finds out, and the first thing that happens is Adam and Eve realize they're naked, which is another way of saying they realize they're vulnerable. They realize now that whatever protection they had from being in relationship with God, that has been breached. They noticed it right away, and they realized that now they were no longer safe, not from the world, not from each other, and they desired to hide themselves. And that is a response to a broken relationship, which they didn't know had happened, but they knew had happened. Like they experienced it without knowing what they experienced. So the first thing when God, not only do they hide from each other by putting on clothes, but when God walks into the garden, they instinctively hide from him as well. They have refused to be discipled by him. They've taken their education into their own hands. And so now they're afraid of God's response instinctively. So they hide. And when God finds him, Adam confesses as much. He's still very honest. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so he says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat? Is, more or less, did you disobey? Did you step out? Did you decide to learn on your own? And God, not that God didn't know, but the story goes that God now realizes that this all began with the serpent who enticed them. And so his first words are to the serpent. And he demotes them. The serpent has been the craftiest of the wild animals. That's what we're told in the creation account. And now he is demoted from that to a creature that crawls along the ground. So more or less, he has lost his standing in Eden, in the divine council. Now we find out that he doesn't actually lose his access to that divine council room. And it's not until the ministry of Jesus in Revelation 12 that he loses all access, but he has been demoted there. So whatever he was, he's no longer has that standing. He's now the lowest of the animals. So he is the lowest in that council meeting. So he's been demoted. The man is cursed with difficult labor on the earth, but I want to focus on the woman's curse. So this is in uh, chapter three, verse 16. So her ability to produce children becomes dangerous for her. But I want to focus on this. It's right here at the end in verse 15, right before the woman's curse. This is what he says to the serpent. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, on a simple reading, it almost looks as though he's saying, you guys won't be able, this conspiracy is over. But that's not how things play out. In fact, humans often continue to, to align themselves with the serpent to the point that in John chapter eight, Jesus will say to the Jewish crowds around him who are rejecting him and his teachings that they are children of Satan. Why didn't this work? Well, later interpreters have long recognized that the woman and the offspring are not Eve and all of her children, but he is looking forward to somebody in the book of Revelation is described as a woman who gives birth to a child and the serpent pursues him. In that context, the woman is Israel, God's chosen people on earth, and the child is Jesus. And so here, the enmity is not between the serpent and all humans who will ever live, but the serpent and the woman, the church, Israel, God's chosen people, and the child they will produce, the king. Jesus. That's where the enmity will be. It's a prophecy. So this pact in Eden did not end in Eden. The serpent and humans continue to work together. And we find that it begins in the story of Cain and Abel. The very next story. The two of them, two brothers, Adam and Eve's first children after they're cast out of Eden, at least as far as the narrative tells us, they want to bring an offering to God. We don't know why. Abel brings one. Cain brings one. Abel's accepted. Cain is not. Cain is jealous. God warns him that his jealousy may lead him astray. But despite the warning, Cain decides the best way to settle this is to kill his rival. And so he kills Abel. And then that creates a separate line of humans, the line of Cain, we don't know who he marries or where the, the, the woman comes from that he finds as a wife because there's so much not told us in these stories. These are summarized versions so that we know what we need to know to understand the way the world is working. But Cain goes out, he marries a woman, and then his line is defined. If you read the genealogy in Genesis 4, his line is defined by an alignment with the serpent. Everything about Cain's genealogy is technology. It's Cain's descendants that invent things. They invent music. They invent metalworking. They invent artistry. And along with all that invention comes a penchant for murder, which culminates in one of Cain's descendants, Lamech. Now, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And one of his descendants begins to call on the name of the Lord, a desire to be back in relationship with God. Enosh is his name. And that begins in chapter five, a line of people on earth who are seeking God. And the biggest difference between them is they live very long lives. They have people in their line who walk with God and have relationship with God, but we're never told about anything they discover. We're never told about any of their inventions or their technological breakthroughs or the kind of societies they live in or how they're structured. We're never told. All that's important in the way that the prophets have told the story is that they walk with God. But Cain's line is full of discovery. It seems that Cain, like his mother, continued to eat from the tree of knowledge and continued to work with the serpent. And we get finally to Genesis chapter six, 
And, and that project of taking knowledge from the earth, of discipling oneself, of setting the agenda of what one will learn and when, and discovering whatever there is to discover and building societies based on those discoveries leads eventually to a world so full of corruption and so full of violence and so full of power mongering, which is what we see in Genesis 6. But it's gotten so bad that the serpent has not only deceived humans, but by the time we get to Genesis 6, the sons of God, some of the members of the divine council, some of the, the angels, the Elohim that God created to work with him also are deceived by the serpent and join the project. And they too start giving information to the women and to the men. They focus on the women probably because of Eve. And so it gets so bad that God has to destroy the earth. And that's the flood. And only one family survives from the family of Seth, one man left on earth who prioritized relationship with God, who walked with God, Noah, and they survive. And then God begins again with humanity and promises not to let it get to that point ever again. Part of God's promise that he won't wipe out the earth in a flood again is his promise that he will not allow the earth to get to the point where that has to be done again. And so from that point on, God promises not to leave humans to their own devices, not to let free will run rampant, but to meddle, to be involved. And we see him doing that with Abraham. But before Abraham, what humans had tried to do before the flood, they also try to do afterwards. They try to build a city and make it the capital city of the earth. They do it on a plain in Shinar, and they named the city Babel. And at that time, they all spoke the same language and they were able to conspire together. But the, the, the logic of that city is the logic of Cain's line. It's going to be a city built on human knowledge, on human intuition, and to try and make a society that would rival God's throne in the heavens, that would be impressive to God. And they're gonna do it on their own by eating from the tree of knowledge. And God comes down and unlike the pre-flood world, he scrambles their languages and stops their project. And so they're scattered over the face of the earth. And then God reaches down and picks one family, one man, Abram, and begins to teach him slowly. But what he wants to teach him is how to be in relationship with God, how to live as a good person in the world, how to navigate the world as God intended humans to understand it and to live and move in it. And he begins that process with Abraham and he continues through his family to teach. And God reveals more and more and more. And finally, on Mount Sinai with the Israelites, after having taken them out of Egypt and delivered them from the gods of this world, from the gods of Egypt, from the fallen ones, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms with whom we collaborate to try and make ourselves gods. That's essentially the story of the scriptures. He delivers them from that, from slavery to that, and then he offers them a covenant. And at that covenant, God begins to teach them the first steps of what it would mean to leave the world of Cain and to enter into the kingdom of God. They're the first steps. The prophets would continue to challenge them throughout history and then God himself would become flesh in the person of Jesus and begin to explain to us the trajectory of that law. If, if Sinai were the first steps, here's where Sinai was intended to lead us. Here are the steps that will lead us to God. And Jesus disciples us. What God had wanted to do with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Jesus does. 
by talking with us, teaching us, educating us himself at the pace he sets with the knowledge he believes we are ready for, so that we will be ready for what he tells us when he tells us, so that we can be holy and wise. And Jesus begins that process again. But while that is happening in the small, know-nothing uh, towns of Galilee in the first century, and God himself is working with this people, the world is still turning. And Satan is still conspiring. And those spiritual forces of evil who, who also were deceived by him have joined the conspiracy. And all around that little place in Galilee and, and in Judea, all around it, the spiritual forces of evil are still working on their project. Daniel is caught up in it when he was exiled into Babylon centuries before Jesus was born. And it began there with Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then the project of Satan and his spiritual forces gets passed from Babylon to the Medes and the Persians, who then pass it to the Greeks through the Greek conquest who then pass it to the Romans, and they are the last. We still live in its shadow. We still live in its rubble. And in the Renaissance in Europe, after the Roman Empire had been fallen for a period of time and some of its ethics had been carried on by the Roman Catholic Church and by the city-states and little nation-states that had continued to carry on the Roman way, keeping the teachings and the alignment with the enemy alive through time, uh, eventually, in the Renaissance, all of those teachings are rediscovered and Rome is reborn in Europe, where the teachings of the Greeks and the Babylonians and the Persians and the Romans are all brought back together and rediscovered through art and philosophy and science and technology and forged into a kingdom that is iron and clay. It's the iron of Rome, but it's filled with the clay of these separate city-states and nation-states, but all forged together. And then after they practiced what it would mean to rebuild the glory of Rome, some of those in Europe caught the idea and tried to do it the old Roman way. Of course, Napoleon, who tries to do the same thing, trying to bring together again the Roman Empire as a dictator. And you have Hitler, you have Mussolini, you have Stalin, all who try to do the same thing. But the thing that worked was to take all the philosophies, all the spirits, all the teachings of all these ancient civilizations, all the knowledge accumulated by strip mining the earth and eating over generations from the tree of knowledge and passing it down and, and take all of that and try one more time to build Babel, one more place where we could put it all together in one place and build a nation. And this time we won't leave out the teachings of God. This time we'll bring some of those teachings in so it can serve maybe as a mortar that will hold it together so God will not take it down. And we live there. This is America. The final permutation of the spirit of Rome and of Greece and of the Medes and the Persians, and of the Babylonians, and of the Egyptians, and all the great civilizations of the past, all of their best ideas, siphoned out, filtered, glued together with some Judeo-Christian ethics, and intended to build a kingdom of God on the earth. Here we stand. Now the church 
in the days of Jesus, the Roman Empire was already at its peak. And Jesus taught us, as I talked about earlier, what it would look like to be discipled by God. What it would look like to receive knowledge and bread from God's hand and not to take it ourselves. What it would look like to become what God intended us to be as Adam and Eve were offered in the garden, to become disciples of God himself, to be taught by the creator of the universe and to submit to his pace, to submit to his methods, to submit to his wisdom. Jesus begins to show us how to do that. And many in the first century, they began to follow him. But rather than building a nation like he had with Israel, this time he scattered them into the Roman Empire. He did it through persecution. He did it through famines. He did it in lots of different ways. You can read some of those ways in Acts. But one way or another, he scattered them. The ancient people of Israel were sent into exile as a punishment, as discipline. But the people of God were sent into exile for the salvation of the nations. And they polluted Rome with a virus of sorts. And those of us in churches now, in Europe and in the United States, and then through the world, really, because this beast has stomped on every square inch of the earth, we now sit, some of us Roman, in every possible way, claiming Jesus, and others of us really children of God trapped in a world hostile to him. And we worship together, we serve together, we vote together, we work together. The people of God and the people of Rome, side by side. All of us wanting to worship the most powerful God. And almost all of us forgetting who God is. That's where we are. And as much as Christianity has corrupted Rome, Rome has corrupted Christianity as well. The influence has gone both ways. And the church had failed through many generations to recognize the ways in which the spiritual forces of evil wanted to make sure that the project begun with the serpent and with Eve continued even in the church of God. That's the attack against the woman. So here we are, repenting. And now we talk about the sanctuary itself as having been polluted with idols. First, in a place that you gather for worship, in a place that you say is for the worship of God, there shall be no idols there. There shall be no emblems of nations of the earth. You must remove all flags and all emblems of the nations of the earth from your mikdash. Secondly, God wants no performance in his sanctuary. He doesn't want us watching each other perform. We can repent in these ways. And finally, he wants nothing done in the place we call holy, in the mikdash that we have gathered for worship. He wants nothing done there except a discussion of his word, interaction about it, and prayers made to him in faith. Look with me at Jeremiah chapter 50. Flee from Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans and be like male goats leading the flock. 
For I'm going to stir up and bring against Babylon a company of great nations from the land of the north, and they shall array themselves against her. From there she shall be taken. Their arrows are like the arrows of a skilled warrior who does not return empty-handed. Chaldea shall be plundered. All who plunder her shall be sated, says the Lord. The place he calls holy only requires two or three people. If the place you have been worshiping does not meet these requirements, then gather with two or three others in any space in which you can obey. Read his word. Pray to him. And God will meet with you. 